Please be seated. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it to Ephesians chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible with you, there is one in front of you, or should be one in front of you, uh, that is uh, in the pew rack right there before you. This morning we come to our third in a series of four messages during this Advent season uh, called A Birth Announcement. We have looked so far at uh, information that is often found on birth announcements. First, uh, the name of Jesus, uh, which in Hebrew uh, is Joshua, because we are told he is given to us because he will save his people from our sins. Last week we considered the family origin, his parentage, being both fully human and fully divine, and how that was not only necessary but beneficial for us. And this morning we come to the size of the child. Our reading this morning is going to begin in uh, verse uh, 14. Our focus will be verses 17 through 19, but for the sake of context, I'll be reading uh, 17, uh, 14 uh, verse through verse 21. So hear the word of the Lord. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We'll stop there at this point. So let's pray. Holy God, we we do thank you. We thank you for this season in which we may turn our attention fully. Uh, to your love as expressed in the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the word through which we're able to uh, understand more of his identity, his nature, and his purpose. And being reminded that as we see him, so we know you, so we see you. And so our prayer, Lord, is that you would this morning take these verses that we are considering And embed them deeply, not only in our minds, but in our hearts, that we may not only know, but that we would experience the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Bless us, Lord, in this, that we might find comfort, peace, joy, rooted in your love, we pray, for the sake of his name, and because we need it. Amen. I have to confess that I often find it somewhat curious that people are so fascinated with the size and the weight of newborns. Now, sometimes it is interesting, and I I get caught with that as well. A couple of summers ago, we were vacationing, and as we were driving through South Carolina on our way to the beach, uh, the radio announced that a child had been born into uh, uh, a family that uh, lived in South Carolina, a child weighing in at 14 pounds on four-tenths of an ounce. That seemed to catch everybody's attention then. I'm sure it caught the mother's attention. And the father was quoted as being incredibly proud as expecting phone calls from Dabo Sweeney any time. 
And then when I was curious about that, so I was looking it up and found that there was apparently another child that was born not in South Carolina, but within that same calendar year, who now, as a 22-pound six-year-old, had actually, six-month-old, excuse me. <laughs> that would be different, wouldn't it? Yes, it's totally different pictures here. But a 22-pound six-month-old who actually had received a football scholarship from the Syracuse University. <laughs> And so sometimes the size of children as their birth or in their infancy is, is quite interesting. And yet rarely is the birth size any indication of what the child is going to become. In our family, our, our largest child was not the largest being born. Our smallest child is the one who was the largest being born. And that's true for many. But nevertheless... It's very rare that you're going to find a birth announcement coming out without the information of how long and how much did this child weigh. In fact, at times when some of our children are born into our congregation and I get information as it is given to me and I post it on our social media, if that information is lacking, inevitably, inevitably we're asked about that information. It is, we just, we expect it. We are curious. We are fascinated by it. Well, this Advent season, we are considering different aspects of the most important birth announcement ever claimed. And so we consider not just those who were born into this world, but one in particular born into this world, the, the birth of the babe of Bethlehem and his birth announcement. Now, obviously, as we're considering size, the weight, and the length, we don't know anything about the specific measurements of Jesus as he was born, as he grew, or even as a full-grown man. We are given some very vague descriptions of, of him physically because that ultimately is not what is important for us to recognize. And I suspect that God in his wisdom didn't give us any details because then we would look at the physical aspect of Jesus and assume that that's what it means to be the ultimate human or the ultimate male. And that has nothing to do with it. It's the fact that he was the fullness of God who was born on earth. But while we don't know any of the statistics about his size and his weight at birth, there is something we are told in this passage of the size of the gift given to us of the Christ who was born into Bethlehem that we not only can know, but that we are strongly encouraged to know. Because in this passage, the Apostle Paul is praying, not only for the Ephesian church, but for all who would come later, that we would come to understand how high and wide and long and deep is the love of God, the love of Christ for those who belong to him. And Paul here is saying that it, it, it is important that we do that. He's saying that he wants us, and it's interesting because leading up to that, he uses and mixes his metaphors that we would be uh, both uh, rooted and that we would be built upon a foundation. So there's architectural and there's agricultural uh, references there so that everybody gets it and understands that he's praying, that we would have some comprehension, that we would grow in that. And the idea that we're, that it's, we're praying and he's praying for us is the indication that we can, we can have knowledge, but we're continuing to grow in our understanding of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, I want to look at those four aspects so that as we leave here today, we have something on our minds that remind us in a tangible way that every time, of, of the love of God every time 
we see something in these weeks to follow that reminds us of the birth of Christ, God's gift to us. And so first we we consider the the width of God's love. The ESV talks about it's the breadth and, and how wide is the love of God. And it's important for us to consider because there are many people who consider Christianity to be too narrow. There certainly are aspects of Christianity that are are narrow. For us to deny that would be foolish. Jesus himself tells us that the way is narrow. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way to life. Jesus says he is the only, he is the way, the truth, the life. That's the meaning only. And those are pretty narrow parameters. And so there's this idea that Christianity is incredibly narrow. And we don't want to deny that because otherwise it undoes everything that Jesus has revealed to us. But we need to understand that within that narrow road, there is an incredible width. The love of God in Christ Jesus is as wide as the world is. I mean, think about the verse that is most known by people, whether they're churched or not. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God's love is as wide uh, as the world. And then consider what Jesus himself had said in John uh, 3, excuse me, in Matthew uh, chapter 28, uh, uh, Matthew 11, 28, he says this, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Revelation ends with this invitation. The spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, come, whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life, who is Christ Jesus. These passages that are in the scripture talk about the the width of God's love being as wide as the world. With an open invitation to anyone who is thirsting, who is hungry, who recognizes their need. And the series, as we consider this season, in the birth of Christ, we come also to not only the birth announcement of those that we would find in the newspaper, but we come to the manger in Bethlehem as we consider the width of God's love. You see, around that manger, you'll find a group of shepherds. And that is both interesting to me and and it is significant because according to Jewish tradition, shepherds were near the bottom rung of polite and decent society. One historian says this, shepherds were below tax collectors and just above dung sweepers. I mean, think about that. They were below people who were working on behalf of the government understood to rip off their neighbors and their family and friends because the tax collectors at the time, they purchased uh, the right to have that job and then they collected whatever they could. They gave to the Roman government whatever they had to give and they kept the rest. So the more that you were able to extort from your neighbors and family, the richer you got. And tax collectors were therefore despised. And and yet this scholar of the Old Testament and of ancient Hebrew uh, culture says uh, the shepherds were considered lower than them. In short, if if somebody was a shepherd, they were considered a loser. 
It leaves the loser in life's lottery. And yet here they are surrounding the manger that contains the promised Messiah. I think that's important. Because if you are here this morning and you feel unloved, or perhaps even worse, unlovable, if you're here and you're thinking to yourself, maybe you've been here a number of times and you know, we keep talking about this love of God, the grace of God, and, and the goodness of God. And maybe you're somebody who says, well, that may be true for most of you. But not for me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how I've failed. If that's your mindset this morning, I, I want you to hear. I, I, listen, I don't, I don't care how you view yourself, where you've been, what you've done, what you have failed to do. The fact that there are shepherds around the birth, the coming of the Messiah is an indication to us that the love of God is wider than any social structure and more welcoming. We need to recognize that among the reasons that Jesus chose to be born in a stable is that so that all of us who feel unstable can come freely into his presence. The width of God's love is wider than your failure. We consider the length of his love. And the length of his love is eternal. It is important for us to recognize that the birth of Jesus was not just some, you know, last-minute plan. God had a sudden inspiration after years of humanity plunging themselves in alienation from him. It wasn't something he decided nine months, ten months before the birth of Jesus. The plan to redeem a people, to demonstrate his love for a people in this world, goes back beyond our ability to calculate. I mean, think about what the scriptures tell us. In, in Daniel 9, Gabriel, who I have heard referred to as the, the big-mouthed angel, he keeps on blabbing everything God is doing in the heavenly realms. He appears and grants this vision, and he says this, Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens, and 62 sevens. It's about 450 years before the birth of Christ. In one sense, it seems to be an insignificant amount of time, but that's more time than since anybody settled down the street to us. And imagine the changes that took place in our culture, in our world, since that event took place in history. 450 years prior to the birth of Christ. But even that wasn't the beginning of the plan. Isaiah spoke of it. Isaiah spoke 700 years in advance of Jesus being born. In Isaiah 7, 14, he says, the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And he elaborates on on his purpose and, and, and the reason he was going to come. In Isaiah 53, he says, surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows, and yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace... It was upon him, 
but by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah speaking marvelously of the purpose that God has given us the gift of Christ that we celebrate in this season. 700 years in advance. But even that is nothing. If you were to go back into the book of Numbers, which is about 1,500 years before the birth of Christ, you see a story there that is somewhat peculiar. Now, Israel was wandering in the wilderness because of both their faith and their unfaithfulness. In other words, they believed God, but they, like you and I, often didn't believe God in, in the moment. And so God had delivered them out of their bondage, and yet he had said that so that you understand and you learn to trust me, you're going to wander for a while. Well, wandering for a while didn't help their attitude or their orientation toward God, and so they continued in their sin and their moaning and groaning and complaining against God. And in the desert, they ended up at a period of time where they were, uh, they were inflicted with a number of snakes that then were biting the people. People were dying because of the poison that these snakes were inflicting upon them. It was part of the judgment that was brought upon them. Because all of our whining and complaining against God is sin, and all sin warrants death. But the people cried out and asked for deliverance, and the Lord told Moses, here's how you're going to remedy these snakes. You're going to make a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, and you're going to lift that up, and as people will turn their eyes and look to the snake that is upon the pole, they will be healed. They'll be delivered from this affliction. We're told in the scripture that that snake represents Jesus. Now, here's where the story confuses people. What do you mean the snake represents Jesus? I'm not a Bible scholar, but I know the snake was in the garden. He's the one that tempted our first parents into causing all of this mess in the first place. And now you're trying to tell me that the snake is Jesus. Well, that's what the scripture tells us. But it's not as mind-boggling as you might think. It's amazing. But it's not really confusing. You see, the scripture tells us that when Jesus went to the cross, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that God would punish the fullness of wrath upon sin itself. And so Jesus, who himself had never sinned, he became as sin. The fullness of God's wrath was placed upon him. The hope that we have is that we would look up and see the cross. You know, the, the one who has become sin lifted up and if we believe in God's promise we are set free from our guilt 1500 years before the birth of Christ and the plan was being foretold it goes back even further than that after our first parents got hoodwinked by the serpent and then voluntarily plunged themselves into sin getting not only death entering into the world, but banished from the garden and perfect fellowship with God. God announces to them, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. And between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and strike your heel. See, it's interesting here is it comes from the the seed of the woman, not from a man. But it's the theologians refer to this as the proto-euangelion. It is the first gospel that is shown in the scripture. The plan for Jesus' birth in order to save us from our sins was first announced immediately upon our first parents being taken out out of the garden. 
And yet it goes back even further than that. Because this Revelation 13.8 tells us this, that the Lamb of God was slain before the creation of the earth. Before God spoke all things into existence, before he made anything, he had already made a plan to redeem the people he would make after his own image, knowing that he made them with a freedom, knowing that in our frailty we would wander, but before the foundations of the earth. That's rather amazing. Whether you're a young earth or an old earth, it's still pretty impressive. See, the length of God's love is eternal. It is eternal past, and it is eternal in the future. Because Jesus himself says this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never is the key word. And he says, nobody can take you out of my hands. Nobody can take you out of the Father's hands. In other words, his love is so great, never, no one, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. That's the length. It goes back more than we can imagine. It goes on for all eternity for those who are in Christ simply by believing, trusting the gift of God's love is given to us. The depth of his love. Now, I know some of you are looking and saying, what about the height? Well, the Greek depth comes first. I mean, think about it. Jesus had it made in heaven. He is equal with God, and everyone knew it. He was worshipped, he was honored as God, as he, is, as he deserves. And the incredible sacrifice that he made, willing to leave the, the perfect oneness, or the, the, the joy and the experience of that perfect oneness and the eternal glory, to become like us was an incredible, incredible step down. And yet he loved us enough to step out of that into this world to become like us. Have you ever thought about what an incredible sacrifice that was? I, I think of it this way. That was a greater sacrifice. He who created all things to become a creature was a greater step down than if you or I were to somehow step down and become like roaches. Now, I hate roaches. They disgust me. I became very familiar with them in my college apartment. Once I got married, I thought I was rid of them. But then we moved to Mississippi where roaches not only are in abundance, some of them grow to be about the same size as some of those little zipper cars that we see riding around town. And in Mississippi, some of them fly. Now, imagine for a moment that God would say to me or, or to you, I created the roach, and he did. I don't know why, but he did. And for whatever reason, he says, and I love the roaches. And I want to reach 
the roaches. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to become a roach. Not only are you going to become a roach, you're going to experience everything that roaches experience. And then, after you have completed your mission, you're going to remain a roach for the rest of eternity. I've got to tell you, it's not very appealing to me. That, that whole idea makes, uh, you know, makes me cringe. Fortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. It's just an illustration. But when I consider that Jesus is God, and that he became creation, there is a bigger gap between the creator becoming creation than there is the apex of creation becoming the most disgusting thing in creation. We are still creatures. We are still creation. We are the image bearers of God, but we are creation. We are not closer to God than we are to the rest of creation by our nature. We are closer to God because he's brought us into fellowship with him. Christ becoming like one of us demonstrates the depth of his love. How low would he go? He would become like me and like you. To not only demonstrate love, but to express his love, to redeem. How about the height of his love? Well, if we lift our eyes to the cross, we see a demonstration of his love. Whenever we think of Christ dying on that cross on our behalf, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that by God's grace and able us to believe and to trust and to rest in what he has accomplished for us, we see love. Greater love has no man than he's willing to lay down his life. And Christ came into the world to save sinners. While we were still his enemies, he gave his life for us. But I want to encourage you to lift your eyes up a little bit higher. Christ ascending into the clouds. As his first disciples would have seen. Why do we need to look there? Well, because Jesus had already told them, I go to prepare a place for you. He said that if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. The love of God in its height as Christ has ascended in the clouds as he is in heaven. He has prepared a place for those who he loves that we would be with him. And I invite you to lift your eyes even a little bit higher into heaven itself because the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father living to intercede for us. In other words, we are told that he is not only, though he is distant geographically, essentially, in nature and realm, he is fully aware of what's going on. He knows what's going on in your life. And he's talking to God the Father about it on your behalf. And Hebrews says he lives for that. That's not only just a purpose, but that's, that's his delight because he loves you. And so the gift of Christ at Christmas is in every dimension an expression of God's love for those who are his. Those who are his are those who believe in him. And the Apostle Paul says here in this passage that he's praying that we would consider 
and that we would come to know and to understand God's love for us in Christ Jesus. But the thing that's amazing is he doesn't just say that he wants us to know so that we would understand intellectually, but he says that it surpasses understanding, it surpasses knowledge, and that's because the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus is not just known, but it is also experienced. And that is the prayer that Paul is offering for the church in Ephesus. And it is my prayer for Grace Covenant during this Christmas season that you and I would know beyond our intellectual capacity, but just know something the same as we know that that which we've experienced, and to know the love of God, which goes beyond our imagination and our ability to comprehend, and knowing it, experiencing it, that we may rejoice and delight in it. Holy God, we do pray with thanksgiving this day. I pray, Lord, that you would grant us faith to believe that which you have revealed and that that truth that you have revealed would overshadow every other tidbit of truth that screams for our occupation. May we see those truths by light of the truth of Christ rather than seeing the truth of Christ by the light of those other truths in our life. In order that we may grow in our understanding, our apprehension, our appreciation of your love for us in Jesus. Lord, we pray this to your glory and to our good in Christ. Amen. The scriptures also tell us to taste and see that God is good. One way in which we experience his grace as at the table that Jesus established for us that points us not to the manger but to the cross, the purpose for which he